Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Welcome to the Fair Perspectives Podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host is Angel Eduardo. Today, we have a very special episode for you. On January 18th, Ferris Legal Network sent to Emory University Student Bar Association on behalf of a group of students who sought to establish a club called the Emory Free Speech Forum, but were denied the ability to do so under the pretext that open inquiry is harmful and because of the white skin color of the founders. Fair also produced a short film featuring the students to help raise attention for their cause. We are excited to announce that thanks in part to Fair's efforts, the Free Speech Forum was finally granted chartered status by the university. For their inaugural event, the Free Speech Forum hosted Nadine Strassen, former president of the ACLU, for a discussion called Agreeing to Disagree the value of free expression in a legal education. Today, we speak with the brave founders of the Free Speech Forum about their victory. But first, please enjoy Ferris' film telling of their story. For those of you on the audio feed, you can find the video linked in the episode description. And for those who have already seen the film, you can skip to the time code in the episode description if you wish to go straight to the interview. And for now, we bring you the Emory Free Speech Forum. We are joined today by the founders of the Emory Free Speech Forum. Uh, welcome, welcome everybody. We've got a we've got a full house today. We've got Michael McKinnon, Corey, and Cameron. Welcome to Fair Perspectives, everybody. Hey, thank you for having us. We're excited to be. Yeah, I wanted to ask actually, how did you all meet each other? Did you all know each other before, or were you brought together by this thing? So we're all in the, so at Emory, um, as I guess at most law schools, we have houses. It's like a Hogwarts situation. Um, we're all in the same house. So we're in all the same uh, classes. Uh, we see each other all the time, every day. Um, and we were all in the same uh, torts class where this incident occurred with the professor. And so, so that's kind of how we met. And there was this session where the professor sort of invited comments and uh, Michael and Cameron and I kind of all uh, spoke up and it really wasn't until that moment. I think that we kind of like found each other as kind of, uh, ideological not even ideological. Cause we all have actually very different beliefs, but free speech allies, I guess is what it is. Though, though I will, I will add one caveat to that. Michael and I are roommates. There is so, that, yes. so we did know each other a little bit before then. Um, gotcha. but I wasn't sure at the time how big of a free speech advocate Michael would be. 
um, I've been very happily surprised. Yeah. So how did you, how did you guys kind of know about each other? Right. Because if there is this sort of chilling effect, right, you'd be, you'd almost be afraid to broach the topic with someone if you're not sure how they're going to respond. So how did that go? I, I know for myself, I was, um, you know, I came into law school with sort of a mentality of, you know, don't, don't make waves, uh, just keep your head down, do the work and, and get on with it. And then this incident happened with the professor and, you know, you saw so many different students, student organizations going after him. And um, they were essentially using their identity as a weapon. And I thought to myself, well, cancel culture only wins when bystanders stay silent. And if they can use their identity as a weapon, I can use it as a shield. Um, so I spoke up in the in the listening session and defended him and said, you know, I wasn't offended. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't think there was a problem with with him quoting a Supreme Court case in a class and it sort of went from there. And, and for me personally, it was I, I reached a point where even if it didn't win me new friends, I thought to myself, what would I regret more? not saying up and not standing up in defense of someone who was being unfairly attacked in sort of a, a cultural problem that I think is, is a big issue, cancel culture, or what I feel better about myself in the future, looking back, if I just remain silent and let it go on. And I decided for myself that I'd rather lose friends um, and know that I'd said something. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, the incident that occurred was uh, about a supposed slur toward gay men and the people who were complaining about this were largely not gay men. And I, unlike them, am a gay man. So I just felt like the fact that this was happening in my class, I'm a bit older than most of my classmates. I may not look it, but I am. And it is hard to, uh, that was a joke, sorry, but um, (laughs) it is hard to kind of live in the world and see what's, what's happening from afar you know, I kind of had a sense of what's happening on college campuses these days, but the fact that something happened in the first month in my class about a gay thing, I almost felt like I was being called to take some action and to try to help in some way. So that's why I spoke up. McKinnon, what about you? How did you uh, feel about this and how did you get involved with with the guys here? Yeah, I was going to say I um, I was originally sort of just kind of like Cameron, I guess, keeping my head down. But I think I, when I was in that class, I, I sort of agreed, I could see all sides of it, but I, I, I mostly agreed, especially when Michael spoke up, I really, I agreed with what Michael was saying. And I saw it as, you know, maybe I should say something. And the whole class was just like, maybe I should say something. Maybe I should say something. I probably shouldn't. And then, you know, and then Cameron spoke up and Corey spoke up and it was like, everything they were saying I agreed with and other people spoke up to who I agreed with. And I was like, okay, at this point I wouldn't be adding anything because everything that I would say has already been said. I would just more be singling myself out as someone who agrees with them and therefore, you know, everyone else probably disagrees with. And, and so I kind of just, I guess, decided that, you know, maybe I shouldn't and already there were so many people trying to speak. And so I just figured it would just not be productive, but I do remember that after the class was over, I approached Corey and I messaged Michael and I was like, Hey, you guys, thank you so much for what you said. It like really resonated and I totally agreed. And I am really impressed that you were able to speak up in front of all those people and say that because I absolutely agree. And I think it's something that's important to stand up for. 
And after that was when, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was a few days later, maybe, um, Michael reached back out to me and was like, Hey, I know you messaged me. Uh, we're interested in starting a group. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting because I spoke and Cameron and I had discussed it before at this point, I didn't really know Corey or McKinnon, but at this point, the group think was so crazy that it was, it just seemed like we, we all, I think we all felt similarly on an Island. Everyone thinks this professor is, this professor's wrong, should be fired. The group think was like nothing I've seen before. And, and after the, um, the sort of listening, talking session we had with the professor, then, then these student organizations that were against him proceeded to try and organize a protest uh, walking out of his classroom. So Michael, Corey, and myself organized a walk-in alternate protest, um, which uh, didn't, didn't at the time win us that many new allies. What were the numbers like relatively, like on, on both sides of the, of the protest and the counter-protests? The counter protests, we probably had what forty or fifty yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I don't. Okay. I don't personally know for the actual protests because it was I, definitely bigger. They were at the same time. Yeah. Um, it, it was. Yeah, it would have been bigger. Um, they were outside marching, chanting. What was it? I mean, free it, expression is oppression. Mm-hmm. Is what they were chanting. I mean, that was the popular thing to do. Yeah. It's, wow. it's, yeah there was well over a hundred people. Yeah. I, my my boyfriend, who is not in law school, isn't involved in any of this stuff, but he was like, he heard about the lockout and he texted me while it was happening. He was like, don't walk out. And I had to explain to him, like, no, no, walking, like, because he doesn't want me to get involved or get in trouble. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, walking out is the thing the popular people are doing. Like, that's the orthodox thing. If I wanted to not get involved, I would be walking out. Walking in is actually, like, the harder thing to do. But... You know, it's just kind of hard to it's it's kind of hard to explain that because these things are so weird. But you know, I think the walk-in was was quite successful. If if in no other sense it was successful in that it it fractured this image which the original protesters were trying to create of this is a model of everyone agrees with us, there's no room for dissent. Right. And, and at the end of the day, that's what the the walk-in was about. Yeah. It was about saying you you have every right to protest if that's what you feel you need to do, but there are other options. So you don't have to. Um, and so it, it created that space for dissenting voices. And uh, I think we had, had a very good turnout. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a profile in, in courage. And it, allows, it allowed each of you to actually recognize just how many, you know, who, who else was, was also um, in agreement with you and, and come together. And, and that's why you're starting this uh, uh, free speech club or free speech forum, um, which, which to me, it, it's mind boggling because you're all law students, right? And the very fact that, so not only is this, is this a forum where you're going to invite speakers to debate ideas, but it seems that the, the values and the culture of free speech in and of itself is not valued at a place like Emory Law. This, this is scary to me. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a reason the founder is enshrined it uh, in the Constitution as, as the First Amendment and, and very powerful, right? And it's something that really sets the United States apart. There's really no other country like it in that regard. Um, but here you are at a law school and people are marching and calling free speech oppression. I think that's, I mean, can, can you just um, kind of dwell on why this phrase and these slogans and this idea that it is um, oppressive, actually dangerous, not just for your profession, but, you know, for, for the country in general? I think that these attitudes come in large part from ignorance from those who are espousing them. They don't, they haven't studied their history enough. They don't understand, they haven't thought about it thoroughly enough to understand what actually the function of free speech is in our society. And for ours, it's 
it's the way that our society releases tensions and gets through difficulties and challenges that we have with one another. And when you take that away and you limit that, um, at a certain point, you get to you get to a point where the only thing that's left is is violence within a society. And you see that in other societies around the world and throughout history where they they had no mechanism by which they could communicate ideas in which they could hash things out in nonviolent ways. And they had lots of violence. Um, so I think it's it's dangerous beyond any profession. I, I think it's it's one of the bedrock institutions of our of our civilization. And it's it's a good hill to die on, though it's a, an even better hill to win on. So tell us about uh, the Free Speech Forum now that it's it's you know an officially sanctioned group. <laughs> um, what how how is it going to be structured? How does it work? How do you invite people? How do you decide on topics? What's what's going on there? So I guess the idea is, and this was what we thought about months ago, um, is to have two types of events. One type of event where we bring in speakers like we're doing with Professor Nadine Strassen on Tuesday, who just people who are interesting and maybe a little bit off the beaten path, specifically speakers who are interested in free speech. And then the second thing, which is pretty casual, but I think super important is just hold conversations in a casual setting about important topics. So um, things like, you know, go to a bar and let's talk about, you know, let's talk about voting rights. Let's talk about um, hate speech laws, things that are conversations that we don't really see happening in our law school. But let's, mm. let's show that we can have these important conversations and still get along afterwards and show the value in them. Um, how, you know, to give a little bit of context for people who work, who have the concerns that they had about what you guys are doing. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to shut down a conversation about CRT if a speaker decides to speak about that. But do you have any kind of protocol in place or or ideas for how you would moderate a discussion that maybe starts to get heated or the the topics that you're discussing are, you know, sensitive for some people, even if they, you know, volunteer to come to this thing and try it out. There are still things that might get people on edge. There are still things that might be upsetting. Uh, do you have anything in place? Have you been thinking about how to regulate that sort of stuff? So I think the, the core to this idea, so one thing we actually expressly rejected was the SBA, Student Bar Association, said, we want you to have moderators. And we kind of said no to that. Um, we are mm -hmm. you know, law students. I'm 24 years old. We think we're capable of having conversations about these important topics on our own. We don't need supervision. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the core to these conversations is attacking ideas and respecting people. So we want to be able to separate, separate the person from the idea. Um, the four of us, for example, have totally different political leanings, political views, but we can separate the way we think from who we are as people and stressing that value as much as possible and creating an atmosphere where we see these ideas are important, but you know, we need to talk about this and we want to create an atmosphere where these ideas are flowing. For big events, the university does have like free speech observers. Um, who are kind of there, just kind of neutral, be neutral and observe and make sure things aren't getting out of hand. And, but, it, but I also think, you know, there's nothing about this club that I would expect necessarily anything to go wrong any more than it would at any other club. And, I, you know, every club hosts people who say things on this or that 
and uh, things go off without a hitch. If someone is going to be crazy or violent, there's no more likelihood that they're going to come to our event than they are to the real estate society event. Right. So I just think maybe that's naive. I don't know, but, um, but I, (laughs) we we will, (laughs) I think it's worth, it's worth not, um, certainly not, we're certainly not going to have school sanctioned moderators to tell us what we can and can't say. I mean, that's not the solution. I mean, I think the only extent to which we need to have a moderator is just for the logistical purposes. And you, know, you and, and I, then I think it sort of works like any other event. You, know, you have someone who's in control of the microphone who makes sure that the person who is supposed to be speaking has it. And, you know, when you have questions, if it's the next person, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that I don't. Well, there, there were sort of there was a push from the SBA in our first projection where in addition to moderators, they said we needed to have mediators. Um, and that, I think, is just... Um, UN peacekeepers. Yeah, so it's like... <laughs> it's, it's unnecessary. It's infantilizing. It's very condescending towards students. Um, even the students who are opposed to free speech more generally, I, I do actually have enough faith in them as uh, you know, at least semi-functional adults to have a conversation uh, and not just completely fall to pieces or start throwing things. Uh, you know, we we are all people, and we're not you know, wild animals. Yeah, and I think so. Just a little more to your question too is that uh, that was a great point by Cameron. You know, we all are hopefully we all are you know keeping our composure, but as leaders of anything, um, and we've all all four of us been leaders of something at some point, you have to have compassion and sympathy in pretty much anything you do. And so we're not just going to start a club and then have things get heated and get out of hand and people start arguing and screaming at each other, or someone starts like obviously getting emotional and we're just going to like laugh in their face. We're going to have compassion. We're going to comfort people if they need it. If someone comes out about a personal experience, I mean, this has happened at some of our sort of more casual, informal, unofficial meetings, you know, people get a little emotional or start talking about a personal experience and you have to have compassion and you, you know, can thank people for sharing their experience. And if someone gets upset or emotional, you can pull them aside and talk to them about it, or you can apologize for upsetting them. There are things that are just basic human decency things that everybody does. And To what Cameron and Corey were saying, we're not any less likely to do those normal human things than any other club is going to do. And so for those people who were worried about that, for the people who thought we were just going to create some event where anybody who came in and got upset would be, you know, terrorized, (laughs) that is not the case. We are still going to show everyone basic human decency. I, I do think that what's happening, though, is um, just just something that has happened, at least from my experience, and, and and why your club was seen as more dangerous than, say, the other. You mentioned that other political clubs have also invited controversial speakers, but but they didn't receive the same you know resistance that that you guys have faced. And um, I remember about this was like four or five years ago now when we had in, uh, started to do a, an event. It was at Harvard University. And um, it was an event that had free speech in the title. And the student union actually came back to us and said, oh, you can't use the word free speech. And, and we, we, we had, you know, the editor, Fleming Rose, who, who, um, who published the, the Muhammad cartoons, the Prophet Muhammad cartoons in the Danish newspaper. And he was there along with a, a free speech scholar um, and, and, t- and a journalist, Mustafa Akil. 
And Harvard came back to us and said, you know, you can't publish this event. Uh, it, the title free speech cannot be in the headline because it is a dog whistle to the alt-right. That was the reason that was given to us. And so we had to, you know, kind of walk on eggshells and, and kind of reframe the whole event as like just defending minorities within minority. It was like a, a really stupid, like pretzel logic just to get free speech out of the title because we were told that the word itself is, is a dog whistle. And I think that might be why your club is facing more resistance because it's, it's offering controversial speakers on a neutral platform versus you have, say, the YAF or, or a Republican club or something that's like explicit what their ideology is. And I think there's this sense coming from the left that um, simply framing this as free speech and open debate is, in fact, platforming and privileging these viewpoints that, frankly, they just, you know, would rather not get platformed at all. So, I mean, how would you respond to that if, you know, like this, this kind of argument? Well, I, I think my initial response is that uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about dog whistles is if you can hear it, that seems to say more about you. So that would be an initial thought. But I, I think, you know, to the extent that we take those kinds of um, allegations seriously, which I think for me personally, like with a grain of salt, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to draw a line in the sand and say that you're not willing to give up certain pieces of language and whatnot, just because some fringe group now says that it represents them. Like, okay, if, if they really want it to be some sort of dog whistle for them, sure, that's not what we're using it for. Uh, and it's not really our responsibility to, to police every last uh, listener's interpretation of something. Um, and it's, you know, if you, if you start going down that path, you're going to lose all of the linguistic tools you have and ways of describing things because over time, fringe groups will just eat them up and say, well, that represents us and this represents us. And you don't have nothing left to be able to say anything. Yeah, and no, I agree. I think in the idea of the word free speech, I think that's one thing we kind of contemplated a lot. And um, I'm really glad we ended up leaning into that term because it is, mm -hmm. you know, it, it has its controversial connotations these days. Um, and I think that's probably part, part of the reason we got rejected is this idea that free speech is just an avenue for hate. But I think that's short-sighted. You look at, yes, people say hateful things, but in the long run, free speech is the, it, it builds bridges. It makes people understand each other. It helps people get to know each other. If, you know, if you, no matter how much you disagree with someone, I guarantee you, if you sit in a room with them and hash it out for 20 minutes, you're going to see the human on the other side. And I just think that's really important and something that's getting lost when we shut, it, shut each other down and don't have these conversations. At the end of the day, it seems like the main reason you'd want to stop it is if you want to prevent people from being able to see the humanity in those with whom they disagree. I wanted to ask you guys if you had actually read um, Barry Wise published on her substack, a piece by Aaron Saber Saberium, I think I butchered his name. Um, it's titled The Takeover of America's Legal System. Did you guys read that piece? I might have. I know I subscribed to her substack, but I don't recognize the name. Um. Clay talked about, um, you know, a, a lawyer. Uh, it, it opened with a story of, of a lawyer um, who had defended Al Gore and Al Gore versus Bush and paved the way for a gay marriage Supreme Court. And he was accosted at, at a talk at a um, hosted, you know, 
uh, he was a liberal legal legend, but but he happened to also represent Harvey Weinstein, and he was subject to to cancellation because he you know dared to represent um, somebody as heinous as, as Weinstein, and um, there was it just ran through all the ways in which very basic foundational principles of of our, our legal system um, is slowly being eroded. Right now, the culture of free speech, for example, um, adversary, the, our adversarial legal system, which which posits that everybody, you know, regardless, uh, deserves the best representation to process. There, there are just some principles, especially the whole like justice is blind. Now we got to orient towards some sort of race and, and, and gender um, kind of future. It seems like it's being co-opted in a way. And um, I, I was wondering if you guys had any... Um, thoughts on that, and maybe this is something itself that you know the free speech club that you started uh, would would want to look into and 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 debate. I would. I, I agree. I think it is being co opted, and many of those sort of bedrock principles are being eroded. Or to use the uh, the 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 parlance of the academy right now, they're being problematized. Mm. Um, mm. I'm. I mean. I notice it in broad strokes and I've also noticed it even in sort of small things, just in our classes, you know, we'll have a professor who asks, asks for input from the class on what the opposition's point of view is. And then you provide what the opposite, even if you don't agree with it, McKinnon's in one of my classes, we were in a health law class and the professor asked for, you know, different sort of stereotypes that the pro-life movement has of the pro-choice movement. And I didn't didn't share what my position is one way or the other, but I said what some of those stereotypes are. And I was getting, you know, if looks could kill. Um, were, Not just looks. <laughs> it wasn't just looks. <laughs> like people what were else? getting angry at me just for saying, just for answering the question. Or, you know, in a criminal law class, you... You're you're part of this class discussion and argument, and you take the side of of someone who's done a horrific crime, and you try and give them the best defense you can on the spot. And you're getting people looking at you like, "How how dare you? Um, you, know, you you now you're making excuses. You're blaming the victim. Well, no, I'm I'm doing what we're here in this class to do, which is to sharpen the skill of being able to represent clients you maybe don't like." Um, and so I, I do notice that, you know, people are, many people take the view that they should be able to represent only the people that they think are on the side of justice. Right. And I think it's in part because they're, they've lost that component of the education, which helps them to understand that, that justice merely is not only about the outcome. It's also about the process yes. and that there's a large extent to which in, in just sort of the complex society in which we live and just our limitations as human beings, mere mortals, that our ability to get the process right is much more attainable than our ability to always get the right outcome. And so justice, to a certain extent, falls more within the process side. So if we get the process right enough times over and over again, that's what gets us closer to the right outcome overall. And so many of our classmates, I think, seem to have this view that, well, we should always just know what the right outcome is, and that's what we should get to. And unfortunately, all too frequently, the fastest route to that right outcome is by taking the wrong process. Yeah, I mean, your job as a lawyer is to stand on one side of the case 
right? That is the necessary condition. It actually doesn't matter that much which side of the case you stand on. The point is that there are two parts to this case. You're not the client and you're not the judge. Your job is to create the necessary condition by representing one of the sides. And you often don't get to pick which side you're on, as these people will eventually find out. Um, And you often don't like the people that you're working for. But you are kind of the cog in the machine that gets us closer to what is hopefully a just outcome. And until you're the judge, until you're the policymaker, then you get to think about all these high-minded things about truth and justice. But when you're the lawyer representing the client, your job is to advocate for their interests. And professional obligation. It's 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 your highest obligation. Yeah. Mm. Well said. Now, is there um, is there an opportunity for people outside of the school to be privy to maybe the the speaker events that you guys put on, or is it exclusive to? Just Emory students. It is not exclusive. Um, so our first speaker, Nadine Strassen, we have done our best to advertise it to um, other area law schools, to members of the judiciary. You know, it, the only sort of limitation is our ability to get the word out. Mm. But you know, it's our, a lot higher now that we have, we are an official organization. Woo-hoo. Right. Uh, so yeah, we're we're happy to have anyone who wants to come and and participate and listen. Um, right. That's what we're all about. <laughs> and so, so before we before we wrap up, uh, let us know how people can find you, how people could find out about what events are coming up. Do you have anything set up for that yet? Yes, our Instagram is Emory is just at the at symbol, which younger people than me understand. <laughs> at, uh, Emory Free Speech Forum, E M O R Y Free Speech Forum, and that's just on Instagram. That is on Instagram now. Yeah. Maybe we'll set up a Twitter we too. Should, but we should do that. Yeah. We, we hadn't gotten that far. Yeah, yeah. We weren't allowed to use the word Emery until yesterday. I think we're up to 24 Instagram followers, but yeah. So it made things difficult for us advertising marketing wise that we couldn't use the name of our school for a while, but gotcha. we can now. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Get that Twitter account fired up and, We'll make sure to tag both. Yeah. I just want to say what you guys doing is so important because, you know, this generation of of lawyers, if they don't understand and and cultivate this, you know, we we talk a lot about even the culture of free speech, which is, yes, there's the legal aspect, but there's the culture of it too. And I think that's kind of what you guys are, are trying to foster with your club and just making people understand why it's needed. It, you know, I mean, if you do actually care about minority rights and real oppression without freedom of speech, you actually can't promote that. So um, I, I'm, just, I'm just grateful that you guys actually started this club and, and, and that you were actually successful. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com. And tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again, and see you next time.